About 15% of Canadians live with chronic non-cancer pain. Opioids are one of the many therapies physicians will prescribe for patients with ongoing pain. But as we've been hearing in the news media these days, opioids have substantial risks, including addiction and death. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for the CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jason Busa, Associate Professor in the Department of Anesthesia at McMaster University and a researcher with the Michael G. DeGroot National Pain Centre in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Busa and his co-authors have published a clinical practice guideline on the prescription of opioids in chronic non-cancer pain. This highly anticipated guideline provides evidence-based recommendations for physicians. He's joining us today from Hamilton, Ontario to explain the recommendations. Hello, Jason. Good morning. Nice to be with you. Glad that you could join me. So in your opinion, is, is Canada currently in a state of crisis regarding opioids? Yes, I would say that's an accurate statement. Uh, to give some data around that, in 2015, there were approximately 2,000 deaths in Canada uh, due to opioids, and preliminary estimates for 2016 suggest that the numbers are going to be higher. Uh, illicit use of opioids is an important contributor to these numbers. However, prescription opioids are also a factor. Canada is second only to the U.S. for per capita opioid prescribing when measured using defined daily doses, and we're actually the highest when defined using morphine equivalents dispensed. So when we're talking about, we're sort of talking about prescription use and illicit use, how do those two connect? Well, we do see uh, substantial rates of diversion in large population surveys that have been conducted in both America and Canada. Approximately 5% of adults report the use of prescription opioids for non-medicinal use. So the more opioids prescribed out there, the greater the chance for diversion. We also have uh, good evidence now from a number of large observational studies demonstrating that at higher doses of opioids, the risks of unintentional overdose, uh, both fatal and non-fatal, also go up. So the more opioids that we have in circulation uh, from a prescription uh, perspective, uh, the greater risks that we tend to see with both diversion uh, and with unintentional overdose. Are there any particular families of opioids or types of opioids that are at greater risk of being diverted? Uh, well, all opioids are at risk for diversion. Even the, the tamper-resistant formulations can still be abused in the most uh, obvious way, which is just oral consumption. There are particularly potent forms of opioids, such as fentanyl, uh, which are uh, uh, particularly uh, prized, I would say, for diversion, also immediate release formulations. Uh, and most of the deaths that are being attributed to opioid poisoning in Canada currently are due to fentanyl. So when your group got together, and we'll talk a little bit about who that is a little later, what was the main purpose, the main reason for, for doing this guideline now? Well, there was a guideline released in 2010, uh, but when we looked at uh, subsequent time series analysis, we uh, the investigators doing this research noted that the uh, rates of high-dose prescribing were continuing to go up. 
the rates of admission to hospital for opioid poisoning were going up. Uh, and so there was a, a need to put out uh, some more current guidance that uh, also was able to benefit from the considerable amount of evidence that had been published since the last guideline was put out. Okay, so who is this guideline intended for? So this guideline is intended for uh, patients living with chronic non-cancer pain that may be considering whether or not opioid therapy should be an option for them. Uh, this is for physicians who, uh, prescri- who have the uh, ability to prescribe opioids for chronic non-cancer pain, and also for medical regulators uh, and policymakers that are involved in this space. So it's a fairly wide scope. I mean, you're basically trying to tackle, obviously, an incredibly uh, complex and and difficult question. You're exactly right. And in fact, when we began the guideline process, we held a full-day meeting where we engaged representatives from uh, pain physicians, coroners, uh, medical regulators, patient advocacy groups, uh, you know, the, the very diverse range of stakeholders that all have Uh, an important say in this area so that we could get their guidance with respect to what this guideline needed to focus on in order to be useful uh, in addressing uh, the the issue of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain. Can you tell us sort of who are the the, the primary actors, let's say, in this developing this guideline and and give us sort of a brief outline of of what some of the steps that were taken to put this guideline together? It's 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 had obviously a a wider consultation than a lot of guidelines have. Yes, uh, this is a very contentious area with a number of individuals that have uh, you know important contributions to make, uh, and we did want to hear from as many of them as we could. In terms of the uh, guideline development group, uh, we had a steering committee which oversaw the, uh, the, the entire process. We had a guideline panel uh, which were individuals that were voting on the final recommendations. We had a clinical expert committee comprised of individuals that uh, prescribe opioids for chronic non-cancer pain. And we also had a 16-member patient advisory committee. Now, uh, as I said, the panel members voted on the final recommendations and the clinical expert committee provided clinical practice guidance in areas where evidence was absent or limited. And our patient advisory committee helped us to uh, focus the outcomes uh, for all of the systematic reviews uh, that we did to summarize the evidence and the, uh, advi- the patient advisory committee also helped inform our values and preference statement. One of the core tenets of evidence-based medicine is that evidence alone is never enough, and we needed to understand the perspective of patients living with chronic non-cancer pain uh, in order to uh, fully contextualize the recommendations that were made. Now, our guideline team placed a strong emphasis on management of both intellectual and financial conflicts of interest in the development of our practice recommendations. And our aim was to ensure that the guideline recommendations were subject to minimal influence from conflicts of interest. And so for this reason, we elected to comprise the voting panel of individuals without important financial or intellectual conflicts of interest and we well post all of the conflict of interest forms that were completed by these individuals. And our clinical expert committee 
was composed of experts with a range of views on the role of opioids in the management of chronic non-cancer pain. We made uh, considerable efforts to include those who viewed opioids as having an important role and also to include others who viewed the practice with extreme skepticism. This is an issue that elicits uh, very strong feelings from a number of both patients and providers, and we wanted to ensure that we benefited from a, a range of opinions. Now, the Patient Advisory Committee consisted of patients that we recruited from across Canada, uh, also with a variety of opinions regarding the use of opioids in the management of chronic pain. Fourteen of our patients were living with chronic non-cancer pain and either were using or had used prescription opioids. One individual had experience with opioid addiction and another represented a family member who had suffered a fatal overdose from prescription opioids. Uh, now, all of our guideline recommendations were supported by systematic reviews of the evidence and we applied the grade system to appraise the quality of evidence and guide recommendation development. And our guideline recommendations could either be weak or strong. Now, a strong guideline recommendation indicates that all or almost all fully informed patients would choose the recommended course of action and indicate to clinicians that the recommendation is appropriate for all or almost all of their patients. Weak recommendations are different. They indicate that the majority of informed patients would choose the suggested course of action, but an appreciable minority would not. With weak recommendations, clinicians should recognize that different choices will be appropriate for individual patients and should help patients arrive at a decision consistent with their values and preferences. Now, what was really interesting about this guideline, which is, I think, different than some, was that you developed these recommendations using, you know, using all the um, evidence-based tools that you had, and then you sent this out for a national consultation. Can you tell us a bit about that? So we did want to send out our draft recommendations for public review and to get feedback on that. And so we sent out uh, directed emails to uh, well over 400 stakeholders that we knew would be interested in this material. We also uh, put out a formal press release. We also used social media to get the word out. And we had our draft recommendations along with some supporting material available for a one-month period. We received over 500 comments back, and we went through all of these carefully and determined where we needed to add additional clarification or where we maybe needed to make some changes uh, in order to address important points that were brought up. Uh, so we do feel that that consultation period uh, uh, added quite a bit of value to our final guideline, and we received uh, uh, some very thoughtful comments back from individuals that, uh, that took the time to review our work. That's excellent. So at the end of all of this very uh, thorough and extensive process, you came up with 10 recommendations. And as you said, the recommendations uh, are graded either weak or strong, as you've described. So can you tell us what is your first recommendation and tell us a little bit about uh, its grading? Yes. Our first recommendation is that when considering therapy for patients with chronic non-cancer pain, we recommend optimization of non-opioid therapy, both pharmacotherapy and non-drug therapy, 
rather than a trial of opioids. Now, this was a strong recommendation, but it was based on low-quality evidence. In general, the GRADE approach discourages strong recommendations when the quality of evidence for critical outcomes is either low or very low. There are, however, five situations in which strong recommendations may be warranted. One of these is when low-quality evidence suggests equivalence of two alternatives, but high-quality evidence suggests a greater harm of one. So for our first recommendation, we had a lot of low-quality evidence, much of it indirect, suggesting equivalence of opioid therapy with a number of other drug and non-drug interventions. While we had high-quality evidence that there was greater harm associated with opioids, and so on this basis, we were able to make the strong recommendation that we did. Opioids should not be considered a first-line therapy for chronic non-cancer pain. One of the difficult things is that, I mean, chronic non-cancer pain can often go along with a lot of different um, comorbidities, and, and some of the most difficult ones are uh, mental health issues um, and substance abuse. So you've got some recommendations related to that. So should patients with uh, chronic non-cancer pain with, with either of these two um, conditions be prescribed opioids? It is an important point, and I should state that although we found uh, approximately 100 randomized control trials that have explored the use of opioids uh, for chronic non-cancer pain, they have almost entirely uh, avoided enrolling patients with substance use disorder or other mental illnesses. So we lack direct evidence in these populations from the randomized control trials. Now, we did not have great reason to believe that they would experience less benefit. Uh, so we did assume that, but we did have evidence from observational studies that these groups are at higher risk of harms. And specifically, there's evidence that individuals with active or prior substance use disorder or other active psychiatric disorders are at higher risk for developing an opioid use disorder or, an, or experiencing an unintentional overdose when prescribed opioids for chronic non-cancer pain. And this increased risk was highest in the presence of an active substance use disorder. Now, the studies that identified substance use disorder as a risk factor for adverse outcomes generally characterized the conditions as alcohol abuse and dependence and narcotic abuse and dependence. The mental illnesses identified in studies as risk factors for adverse outcomes were generally anxiety and depression, as well as post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, for this reason, we have made a strong recommendation to avoid prescribing opioids for patients with chronic non-cancer pain and an active substance use disorder. We have made weak recommendations to avoid prescribing opioids for patients with either a prior substance use disorder or other active psychiatric uh, illness. So basically what you're saying is then, then clinicians should, you know, obviously avoid opioids and be really exploring the range of um, non-pharmacological or non-opioid therapies in this group. Yes, and, and we, we, we did want to try to strike a balance. We realized that with these recommendations, we ran the risk of stigmatizing vulnerable populations. 
And so it was only for patients with an active substance use disorder that made a strong recommendation to avoid opioids. Uh, in other cases, we've made a weak recommendation acknowledging that we understand an appreciable minority of patients may still elect to pursue a trial of opioids even after they've been fully informed. But we did uh, want to make some explicit direction in regards to which patient populations were likely to be at greater risk of harm for the prescribing of opioids. Uh, we found that prior guidelines have largely made fairly generic statements in this regard, um, along the lines of only prescribe opioids when the anticipated benefits are expected to exceed the anticipated harms. And these kinds of statements are not specific enough to guide clinical action. So by providing the actual subgroup factors that are associated with greater harms, the actual harms they're associated with, and the absolute risk increase, we believe that it's going to facilitate more informed decision-making between uh, patients and their physicians. Now, we're going to talk in, in a minute, actually, about when people should consider a trial of opioid therapy, but we sort of alluded to already that there are, you know, non-pharmacologic options um, and non-opioid pharmacologic options that are available. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what are the kind of things that they could be looking at before opioids? Yes, we, we did find some direct studies comparing pharmacologic therapies against opioids. So with respect to uh, other therapies that have shown similar benefit to opioids from head-to-head -head trials, uh, we do have evidence that supports that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs uh, or tricyclic antidepressants uh, have a similar effect in terms of reducing pain and improving function uh, as compared to opioids, uh, however, with a uh, lower uh, adverse event profile for some of the serious harms that opioids uh, can result in. We have indirect evidence, meaning that we, we don't have direct head-to-head -head comparisons, but we have fairly large bodies of evidence showing that uh, gradua graduated exercise therapy, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, uh, these interventions can also be effective uh, in improving uh, chronic non-cancer pain symptoms, uh, but without uh, a lot of the more uh, rare but very serious uh, adverse events that can be associated with opioid use. If a physician then has tried some of these, I mean, what would you consider kind of um, an appropriate trial of, of non-opioid therapy before a physician and patient should consider a trial of opioids? Well, there, chronic pain is not a condition in which there is any overnight cure. Uh, so any approach that is taken will require a number of months in order to see if it is going to provide a benefit for the patient and if the benefit that they achieve is going to be sufficient that they feel uh, that they do not need to consider looking at a trial of opioids, for example. Uh, now, a number of these therapies are going to be dependent on the available resources, and depending on where the uh, the patient is, um, uh, perhaps their, their financial situation, uh, they may not have all of the options available of someone else. Uh, so a reasonable trial is going to be situation-dependent, uh, uh, and clinicians and patients are going to have to work together 
to determine what is going to be reasonable for uh, for an individual's particular case. But I would look at trying treatment of, of non-opioid therapies for at least three to six months before uh, deciding whether or not a discussion should occur about adding a trial uh, of opioids to existing therapy. So if a, if a clinician patient are now at the point where they have done an adequate trial, things have not really improved, they want to consider a trial of opioids. What does the guideline say about how to do that? Well, we, we do provide some practical guidance, but in terms of the uh, position from the recommendation, uh, the guideline advises that for patients with chronic non-cancer pain, without current or past substance use disorder, and without other active psychiatric disorders who experience persistent problematic pain despite optimized non-opioid therapy, uh, we have made a weak recommendation for adding a trial of opioids rather than continued therapy without opioids. So they decide they want to consider a trial of opioids. What kind of dosing? I know that the guideline talks about some dosing levels, and there are a couple of dose levels mentioned. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, and, and it's it's interesting when you look at the randomized control trials that have been done, the median dose that's been administered is around 50 morphine equivalent uh, per day. So the, the existing evidence that we have has not been uh, with the application of high-dose opioids, and yet if you look at uh, clinical practice, the realities of it, there are quite a few patients that are receiving much higher doses. And we do have evidence that there is an increase in the risk of rare but serious harms as the dose of opioid goes up. And in accordance with that, uh, we have made a strong recommendation that for patients with chronic non-cancer pain who are beginning opioid therapy, that the prescribed dose should be restricted to under 90 milligrams morphine equivalent per day rather than no upper or a higher limit on dosing. And we've also made a weak recommendation to restrict the prescribed dose to under 50 milligrams morphine equivalent per day. And we've done this on the basis of observational studies which provide moderate quality evidence of a progressive increase in the likelihood of unintentional non-fatal overdose or death as the prescribed dose of opioids increases. Now, these serious outcomes are very rare in those prescribed less than 50 milligrams morphine equivalent per day, but they increase in those prescribed doses between 50 and 90 milligrams, and although still rare, are further increased in those prescribed doses over 90 milligrams. So you're basically saying, I mean, the recommendation would be for a trial to, to stay under 50. I know that there's the weak and the strong recommendation, but it sounds like that would be sort of a, a safer a safer place. Um, how what, what kind of length of trial would be reasonable to know whether the opioid therapy is working or not? Yeah, it, it's, it's a great point. We, we did find an important effect in the data that we synthesized from uh, randomized control trials that the effect of opioids on pain relief uh, becomes smaller over longer treatment periods. And because chronic pain uh, does typically involve long periods of treatment, it's important to understand that opioids are likely to become uh, a little bit less effective as treatment duration continues. It's for this reason that when we provide the pooled estimate of treatment effect on pain, 
we restricted our data to only those studies that treated patients for three months or longer. Um, so when we talk about what a reasonable trial of opioids should be, in order to understand for the individual whether the benefits are likely to exceed the challenges that they may come into with uh, adverse events, um, we are suggesting that clinicians consider a trial of three to six months in length uh, to really get a sense of how their patient is doing with the trial of opioids. So one of the tricky things would be, though, is at the end of, let's say, three to six months, they're, they're on, let's say, 50. It was working originally. Maybe it's not working as well towards the end of that. There's always that temptation, let's just increase the dose. Yes, and, and there may be some increased benefit as the dose goes up, but there is also then the needs to be acknowledgement that there is going to be an increase in the, uh, the risk as well. And so it's going to come down to this, this trade-off. And we felt again that for patients that have been optimized on non-opioid therapy without some of the important risk factors that we've been talking about, a trial of opioids below 50 milligram morphine equivalent is, is reasonable. We do understand that an appreciable minority of patients would choose to go above 50 and look at a dose that was less than 90. And we do have an associated remark in the guideline that there, again, is likely to be some exceptions. Uh, individuals that receive a partial response uh, between a dose of 50 and 90, and because they've seen that partial response, uh, they, they perhaps want to consider going above that threshold dose. Um, we, we believe that this would apply only to a, a, a very small number of patients, and we do believe that there should be an additional consultation, not necessarily with a pain specialist, but with another colleague of the patient's physician uh, to make the case for why a particular individual might be an exception to this strong recommendation and may be willing to consider going above the 90 threshold uh, to see if they can achieve better management of their pain. Now, there are going to be patients uh, listening and clinicians who have patients who are on a lot more than 90 equivalents per day. What suggestions or recommendations does the guideline have for them? Yes, and, and you're, you're quite right that our thresholds around prescribing are specific to individuals that are beginning a trial of opioid therapy. And there are a large number of legacy patients uh, in Canada using doses, uh, in many cases, higher than 90 milligram morphine equivalent. This was an important issue that our patient advisory committee members brought to our attention. Um, because a number of them were in this position, they were quite concerned uh, about the impact of the guidelines in terms of uh, affecting the amount of opioids that they would uh, be able to receive and perhaps even leading to them being uh, taken off opioids altogether. So in terms of those individuals that are currently using 90 milligrams morphine equivalent of opioids per day or more, we, we have made a weak recommendation to approach these patients about tapering opioids to the lowest effective dose, potentially including discontinuation. But we are very cognizant of the fact that there are risks to decreasing the dose, including opioid withdrawal. And so for those patients who struggle with tapering, we've made a strong recommendation for referral to a formal multidisciplinary tapering program. 
However, our clinical experts were very helpful in pointing out that these programs are not widely available. They often have limited capacity and they may incur uh, out-of-pocket costs for patients that are not always affordable. So as a result, we've tempered this recommendation uh, by acknowledging that a reasonable alternative is for providers to coordinate a multidisciplinary team of several health professions whom physicians can access according to their availability to support patients who are struggling to taper. We've also made the acknowledgement that there are likely to be some patients who will experience persistent pain or important functional reductions for longer than a month after a small reduction in their dose of opioids. And for such patients, uh, it is reasonable to pause the tapering effort or even to stop tapering. We, we, we want to be cautious about reducing the risks associated with higher dose opioid prescribing, uh, but not at the expense of causing more problems than we're trying to solve. And there is at least the potential out there that if individuals are taken into opioid withdrawal, uh, they may feel compelled to seek out opioids from illicit sources. And, and, and this is really not uh, an outcome that we want to, uh, that we want to promote. One of the things that you've alluded to as we've gone through our discussion is the availability of resources. You know, and in, in obviously, I think some of the large cities and and teaching hospitals may have um, resources available, as you mentioned, like a multidisciplinary team. But that's obviously not the case across the country. What kind of resources do we need in Canada to be able to address this? Well, there, there's there's a couple of things that that stand out from that question. One is we have made a strong recommendation to optimize non-opioid therapy before patients are considered for a trial of opioids. Well, what this means is that it would obviously be very helpful for patients to have non-opioid therapy made available. Uh, and not just pharmacotherapy, but non-drug therapy as well. Uh, so this, this is an important issue for uh, policymakers to consider if, uh, if, if there is going to be greater encouragement for patients to uh, pursue non-opioid therapy for their chronic pain, such services need to be made available. And as you've quite correctly stated, uh, there are some areas where availability is unlikely to be an issue, but in the more remote areas of, of Canada, it, it's, it's something that patients are going to struggle to find access to. Uh, there is uh, experimentation with providing remote services, either through telemedicine for things such as cognitive behavioral therapy, or even uh, practical advice to uh, local physicians through uh, Project ECHO, which is looking at trying to provide pain expertise in remote areas. Uh, but we need to understand the effectiveness of these approaches uh, and if they are truly being made available to uh, patients that are in need. So it sounds like in, in a lot of ways that if Canada is going to take this seriously, policymakers do have to look at making resources available. You know, I think one of the things that you'd said earlier, again, you know, that there may be circumstances when there really aren't many therapies available in certain areas. And so clinicians and patients alike might uh, feel that a trial of opioids, it may be perhaps considered a little earlier than it might be considered in a center where there are other resources. 
Yes, I, I do think that if resources, if non-opioid resources are less available, that it's quite likely going to lead to an earlier uh, consideration of opioids than would otherwise be the case, uh, further reinforcing the need to provide non-opioid alternatives uh, to patients with chronic non-cancer pain. So the full opioid guideline, along with 10 recommendations, I know we discussed a couple of the, uh, a few of the important ones here, is available on the CMAJ website at cmaj.ca. But I know that there are some other places where physicians can view this recommendation and uh, find some additional resources. Where might that be, Jason? Yes, uh, the National Pain Center website will house both uh, an English and French version of the opioid guideline. It also has other practical resources to guide opioid prescribing for chronic non-cancer pain. And that website address is nationalpaincenter.mcmaster.ca. Now, another thing that's that's been a, a bit different, again, about this guideline is that there's the MAGIC app. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and how it connects with the guideline. So readers of the guideline will see that throughout there are links to the MAGIC app uh, which is an online, uh, multi-layered, uh, interactive version of the guideline, which uh, we feel is going to improve uh, uh, utilization of the recommendations. It allows individuals to very quickly go through the uh, particular points and the recommendations they're interested in. Uh, it also allows for the generation of patient decision aids that can be used in real time during the clinic encounter. So we, we did do a a series of, uh, of research looking at the uh, attitudes and use of the 2010 guideline. We did receive feedback that the uh, format and the length were suboptimal, and we believe that the MAGIC app may provide important improvements uh, that will greater facilitate uptake and utilization of the 2017 guideline. So for, for those listening, if you go to the uh, cmaj.ca, look, look at the guideline, you'll see links throughout to the, the MAGIC app that Jason's talking about. Now, for anyone listening uh, who may be struggling with opioid addiction or who has a loved one who is struggling, um, what would be your advice? Well, uh, as we talked about earlier, opioid addiction is beyond the scope of our guideline. Uh, however, I would encourage engagement with a physician trained in addiction medicine. Um, as well, there is evidence to support having naloxone available for patients who are addicted to opioids to be administered by family or friends in the case of overdose pending arrival of emergency services. Uh, naloxone can stop or reverse an opioid overdose and is available without a prescription at pharmacies. And Health Canada has detailed information on their website regarding the use and availability of naloxone. Now, Jason, we've talked, uh, this is a lot about this very, very detailed and important guideline. If you could boil this down into one key take-home message for, for physicians who are listening, what would that be? Well, I think I would recognize first that chronic non-cancer pain is a challenging condition to manage. Uh, for a number of years, opioids were promoted as a low-risk and effective strategy, and as a result, prescribing, often in high doses, increased dramatically in North America. With the increased recognition of the risks associated with opioids and escalating rates of overdose, the pendulum has begun to swing the other way and I believe that there's now a risk of an overcorrection. 
And I think physicians should be mindful of the risks associated with aggressive tapering of opioids or opioid cessation. Opioids are not a first-line therapy for chronic non-cancer pain, but they are likely to benefit some patients who are optimized on non-opioid therapy and yet still experience problematic pain. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining me uh, to talk about the guideline. Well, thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's been an extreme privilege to uh, help explain a little bit more about what we've tried to accomplish. I've been speaking with Dr. Jason Busa, Associate Professor in the Department of Anesthesia at McMaster University and researcher with the Michael G. DeGroote National Pain Center in Hamilton, Ontario. To read the full opioid guideline, visit cmaj.ca. If you've been listening to our CMAJ podcasts, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or leave us your feedback on SoundCloud or on any of our social media channels.